Okay. So welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. The, uh, we're going to be discussing DNA and delay in process. Our intent today is to review some history policy regarding DNA and the delay in process that result from crimes or other uh, findings. And again, the style of this roundtable is as if we're in a coffee shop on the Yakima Reservation and you, the audience, are flies on the wall. Uh, I want to think of a better phrase than flies on a wall, but <laughs> you're passing by, you're in the next table, and maybe you stop through and have an additional comment or question. If that does come up for you, please leave that in the um, chat box or in the um, comments. So again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all Native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings, and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlawick. Uh, before I go further, was there any announcements that I uh, that we had for today? Not really. I just wanted to uh, let everybody know. I hope everybody does well because I know with the accommodation we are in flux of our uh, COVID phases. So I just want to remind everybody to be um, try to stay healthy and safe. Uh, thank you for that. There definitely is a lot um, going on and we do wish you um, to take care. Robin is correct in that. We also have um, memorials and memories coming up for those that we've lost um, in a range of emotions. So I want to um, begin this uh, roundtable with just, I'm just going to dive right in about something that is bugging me. And I appreciate my co-hosts for entertaining this idea and willing to discuss this so that I'm not walking around my house talking to myself about all the emotions that are coming up about this. So we have, um, we have what, who we refer to as the ancient one, also known as Kennewick man. And in our language, and I'm going to read a couple of quotes. One I'm going to read from a blog post I wrote in 2017. And, uh, and then I'm going to read from an article um, that talks about how and why this is continuing uh, needing action regarding our ancient one. And it includes DNA and uh, who has the rights to our bones and replicas of that. Uh, so I start with saying, in fact, you have entire campaigns that attempt to shorten our timeline on these lands. After decades of claims largely built on faulty scientific theories and institutional racism, our ancestor, Tichamaninch Oitpamana T-type, returned to natives of the Pacific Northwest. I was researching a different article and I came researching for an article that I'm writing about uh, fish and I came across this article, Buckshot for Brains. Uh, you can find that on the confluenceproject.org. For $389, not counting taxes and shipping, you can buy your own replica of the Kennewick man skull. The anthropologist who made a cast of the cranium and skeleton after it was dredged from the Columbia River sells copies of the skull through an online shop called Bone Clones 
ink. Now, I just want to get your thoughts about the selling of replicas of this Native American skull and remind just our audience a little bit about the background of this. And my co-host can feel free to jump in and add additional um, history and background and context. Um, but, you know, for a number of years after the finding of this, our ancient one, they, scientists fought against scientists and our own thousands year old data to determine the ethnicity of this uh, individual. Um, when the findings first came out, they called him Caucasoid, not native, not from here. And the press kind of just quoted that and took that and ran with it. And tribes had very little voice and the article in Confluence goes over that and a lot of our native people have been over that. So fast forward many, many years and we have natives that submitted DNA. Uh, to show a direct DNA connection to uh, Kennewick Man, the ancient one. Uh, and so in the meantime, there was these, uh, the, the archaeologists that originally did these findings published this six pound book. I didn't weigh it. It was in the article. She must have weighed it. I've held it. It's on our own Yakima Nation library. I held it and like squinted my eyes at it. That's the most I do to library books. I try not to. <laughs> especially at our own uh, tribal library, but uh, you know, it is a very heavy book and it just, it was a very um, karma moment. I think when you had this big, huge book that had all these supporters uh, was just kind of null for the most point because the findings that it was native and the proof that it was native came out after it was published. Um, so if you guys have thoughts about that as well, but I just want to again, get your thoughts about the selling of replicas of this Native American skull, the, any thoughts about the uh, DNA and process, and I'll go ahead and start with uh, Robin. Thank you. Uh, I remember being uh, like younger in my early 20s when uh, Kennewick Man was first discussed, and the thing that really struck me even then um, was, of course, how important that this case was in general in terms of his DNA. Because for one, it would establish the uh, time immemorial that you know our people are always talking about, our presence and our connection to the land. But it also really brought out the colonialist mindset um, of every uh, action or or law or any kind of uh, as Patsy has brought it before, papal bulls and things like that would that would just justify that if this person. Uh, the ancient one, if they were found to not be native, it would just further justify their narrative, which is just like, for one, this land is uh, inherently ours by God, you know, you know, those kinds of ideas. So I remember that really striking me then, which is like, not having a doubt that uh, the ancient one was um, from this area and was a native person but still just kind of like having that doubt, not that he wouldn't be proven to be native, but that like the powers that be would try very hard to, to continuously uh, try to justify that, hey, you as native people, despite that we know you've been here and you were here before and here in time of memorial as your stories prove, this would prove us right that you, know, you don't have right to this land. You know, everything that we've set in place is, is, is uh, this genocidal act 
going down from blood quantum to like enrollment numbers and all of these other things, um, which all just leads to you native people do not have right to this land and we are justified in treating you the way that we did. Um, because, you know, we wanted these resources that are not yours to begin with, you know, that's what I felt like it was trying to get to. So, and it, it just definitely juxtaposes against to what uh, we've discussed before, even with Tammy Ayer, which is wanting to have this proven uh, scientific, uh, either carbon dating or DNA um, comparison about who a person is like down to the genetic, down to the, the molecule level of what your origins are. And it's just really kind of jarring because for one, I see the importance of DNA and things like this and, and being able to prove in those, uh, like what I would call like white realms, Western society type realms um, for data to be proven and, and to kind of like show on that front how important DNA is and how it's usually in our favor, if not 100% in our favor through the stories and things we give. But on the flip side is later on how that same DNA is used as a conduit of like, um, what do they call that? Not exposure, but where they're taking advantage of that information and not revealing their true intentions when it comes to it. So I think this is a great segue to start um, and it's been on my mind for probably over a decade or, you know, for a long time. But um, yes, so in that instance, I felt that DNA, uh, and of course, as the title implies, the delay in process, we're still discussing uh, the ancient one, you know, and I think you've said it before, Emily, where it's like, we barely have rights to our bodies, and now we barely have rights to our DNA, you know, or you said something along those lines. And that this is just a prime example of what, what that looks like. Thank you so much for your uh, thoughts. And since I took up a lot of time in the, in the beginning, I want to see if Lucy uh, wants to have respond and add additional thoughts to that. Thank you guys. Um, so I'm having, I mean, just to, like I'm hungry and that part is distracting for me, even though I just ate a little bit. <laughs> So I just want to put that out there. But with um, some of the information that you have provided us uh, with the article from the Burke Museum, Emily, I also wanted to point out for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, um, with NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which is a mouthful. Um, it was passed in 1990, which provides legal protections for Native American human remains including their return to tribal communities if the tribes can prove they're related to the remains. So in regards to the Kennewick man, the article indicates that the scientists argue that the remains were not proven to be related to present day tribes. Therefore, they should not be subject to NAGPRA and should be available to the scientific community for study. So several Washington and Oregon tribes joined the federal government in defending the suit. And so I just want to put into context, like there's this whole timeline of what has been happening with the controversy of Kennewick Man. And then to hear that, you know, so our tribes defended to have him buried. And yet now we're finding on random websites that there's this recreation of a skull 
And I don't understand for one, who's buying this stuff? And then for two, like, I just don't understand why, why is this a sellable item? You know, and in my mind, I, I feel like we have to go back throughout history of how anthropology and archaeologists have consistently defined who we are, observed and researched and published these studies on us. And um, I feel like just in this article, like I'm kind of getting, having some reactions about it just because we have to prove so much to exist. We have to prove our blood quantum. We have to prove our history, you know, the historical context of us being related to the land in order to be federally recognized. And then, you know, we even have to prove that, oh, these archeologists came and stole these remains of our ancestors to study them. And um, it just, it get it infuriates me that we're constantly having to be defensive about our history because it's not defined and understood in colonial times. Um, and, and they still, scientists still write about us as if there is this, you know, like they say the modern day tribes, but we have been those tribes all these years. You know, we've evolved we, and, and we've had to change by force of government. So I, I feel, I just feel like it's ridiculous because it goes to show how we as a people have not been honored and we're dehumanized. We're dehumanized down to research subjects. And, um, and for us to have to still have this conversation about do the remains really belong to us? <laughs> Do we have rights to that? And then we have to prove that and even put in money towards, you know, like the history and then going through this application process for NACPA to even see if it's an eligible thing deemed by the government um, really tells us that, you know, we are not fully sovereign entities. So that's kind of like my rant for now. <laughs> It's good um, going over some of the federal, uh, you know, documents and giving reference to that is important. Uh, Patsy? Um, yes, good morning, everyone. I just wanted um, uh, to share uh, so somewhat of what Lucy shared about uh, the various federal policies and laws that we have to respond to. And she's right, and we're all aware of that. But um, you know, as the audience, I'm wondering, you know, what do we as Native people, um, you know, what do we get from these kind of laws that have been put in place? And when you could take any law and there's all, always a matter of interpretation as well, just as the scientists are also, you know, having their feuds, um, we have conversations with one another and that's the intent of, uh, what we're doing today is having a conversation with one another, uh, even though there are these battles that continue to go on. And as Native people, we are we depend upon you know our our elders and our our ancestors and the oral history that we have about where we come from in this land here in the Northwest. And so uh, when we think about where we're located it's very unfortunate that we have to continue um, to, you know, to fight with the federal government or state government, or even at the international level to 
say that we still exist as a people, um, not only existing as a people, but our relationships that we have with the land as well, um, where the ancient one was located uh, is in the original homelands of who we are as a Yakima people. And so, um, so we know as a people that we have this relationship and it's unfortunate that the scientists, um, you know, those scientists who are uh, against the tribe's statements about you know, who we think he is, um, they're not familiar necessarily with, with the, the traditional uh, homelands of the people. And so we're constantly having to educate um, these scientists as well. And, and it's not just scientists, it's, uh, I think it, in general, it's non-Native populations about who we are as a people. And similarly, when we're talking about missing and murdered um, indigenous women and people, it's a whole nother issue. There's layers upon layers. And I say that from just personal experience is that, you know, even though I might've given my DNA, there never was a response from the federal government about my submitting DNA. And so we all experience this issue on different levels, um, you know, this collective response that ha we're having to the ancient one, but also personal and family uh, related issues as well when it comes to you know, having rights, you know, to the DNA, uh, uh, you know, of family members. And then, you know, on uh, another note, um, it has to do with, uh, you know, selling um, the ancient one, uh, this recreation of a skull, those kinds of things. To me, it just reminds me of, you know, things like Halloween. And that's when we start getting into, you know, this, um, uh, you know, issues with representation. How do, how can we be, how can a person sell this and then think that, you know, for me, it's just about money. That's what it's about. And when I think about Halloween, it's the same thing as, you know, replicating, you know, an item, and in this case, a skull, and then make and selling it uh, to the public. And so to me, there should be some, you know, ethical checks on these kinds of issues that we encounter, you know, on a, on a daily basis. And as Lucy said, this is uh, really a dehumanizing to us as a people. And this issue is not just with native people here in the United States, it's with, um, you know, many indigenous populations around the world or minority populations here in the United States. And so it's an ongoing issue and one that we have to continue to battle with. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, you bring up a lot of good uh, points there, my co-hosts, uh, and you know this collective response, as Patsy had said, you're all in it now. The, all of our guests are in this collective response. <laughs> Feel free to sound off. But um, I do want to say that I did talk to one of the uh, individuals that did give their DNA uh, for to prove a direct linkage for living Native Americans in the uh, Northwest region. Uh, that individual was unaware that replica skulls were being sold. So it's in essence a direct lineage connection. 
and their replica skull is being sold. Could you imagine being like getting a message about that? One of your relative skulls being sold for profit from an institution that fought saying that natives didn't exist here at a time period, as Robin had talked about. Um, and, you know, in initial, uh, it, I don't want to say investigations, that sounds so serious for our little chat here, but in initial questions, it seems like they've been selling this skull since 2013 timeframe and tribes, uh, one of the tribes have been trying to stop them. And specifically that would have occurred um, from the time frame that I'm recalling while before Kennewick men had been uh, transferred to tribes for reburial. So why wasn't this already in process if during the court proceedings, during the transfer of remains from um, the museum, you know, to the tribes, why wasn't all relevant materials, DNA, all of those things taken and, um, and allowed to rest in peace? And why, and again, it does bring up these issues about federal government response, you know, and these other emotions that come up regarding uh, tribal members giving their DNA and what federal response is going to be there. You heard from Patsy talk about uh, the DNA regarding her missing sister and the lack of response from federal government. Um, and it, it just does, does dive up this thing. So we have value in our bones, but only to be studied, not as a voice, not as somebody that's like trying to find out where their sister is. Um, but I, um, I'm going to turn it back to my co-host, but I do want to share one memory that this uh, individual had shared that when the uh, T-Chumaninch, our ancient one, was being transferred uh, back into the tribe's hands from the Brook Museum. Uh, the Brook Museum did not study the ancient one, but they were court uh, appointed, I believe, to hold on to the remains until uh, the issue was settled about, you know, who could who they belong to. And um, they said that they were singing songs, uh, our uh, traditional songs, that they there were two eagles flying overhead. And something about that just gave me a little bit of peace, just knowing that there is, you know, a longstanding connection with nature from our people here. And, um, you know, in this work that we bring up, in these critical issues that we bring up, in this collective response that we bring up. So, um, delay in process. You know, this to me sounds and seems like a delay in process. It seems like something that would have been addressed in the previous court ruling regarding ownership and transfership. Like, why are people allowed to keep molds of Native American skulls? if their six pound book in faulty science is disproved. Um, and you know, why this delay in response and overall, we heard from our guests last, uh, last episode about how this skull was missing for 33 years and has never had DNA taken from it. The family's been waiting for answers of whoever this loved one is, and that has not happened yet. And so this delay in process seems to be a theme. And I want to turn to, uh, again, my co-hosts to get their response. Robin. Thank you. Um, so as we discuss this, the more 
things tend to pop up in my head of what this issue uh, brings up for me in terms of um, just like missing skulls or delayed process of giving skulls back in general, as we discussed again with Tammy A or uh, and Parker Doe, you know, those kinds of things. And, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, I'm always like the, the nerd who likes to reference movies, but um, I've always went like Django, uh, directed by Tarantino. Um, there was a scene Leonardo DiCaprio like talks about these certain indentations in African-American skulls that, uh, you know, according to him to early 1900 phonology, like fanatic, uh, he's like, oh, this just means that, you know, this race is more submissive, you know, and so when we talk about missing skulls and like that, like whether or not it's, it's in that kind of setting, for me, it just is almost like, what is this trying to be proven through this? It also reflects back to me to, uh, to keep these kinds of things. Uh, it's almost treated like an oddity, like as if, you know, you go back to the freak show era you know, just like, oh, this is an oddity of the humans, you know, and so let's, let's make a show of it, which is exploit, like exploitation, essentially, um, which, you know, again, colonial projects through any European nation uh, that uh, is in, invested in colonial projects have these type of shows, you know, and so they have colonial fairs, they have human zoos, um, world fairs was like a, a lower version of that um, where they would just show hey this is everywhere our colonial hands have reached um, which essentially was a show of force which is to like sure it's like oh it's this oddity but in, in general what it means is that it shows the colonial hand and their force like this is our reach and these are the people that we have under our thumb or who were, were, were uh, actively colonizing and this is um, why, you know, we're justified in colonizing uh, these people. And it also, uh, again, echoes the power of reach, which I feel we're still dealing with. Um, again, as we discuss, like I said, skulls and stuff, it just really just kind of brings me back to that kind of setting of like, as you said, we were oddities. Um, how can we uh, make a show of this? to show again the justification of our colonialist projects. Um, and it's just, the reach goes back into our, the laws that are set um, and how it would not be relevant to NAGPRA, like what uh, Lucy had brought up, just kind of like, oh, we're gonna continue showing these as um, oddities of nature and things like that. Ooh, these are so neat, but it feels so exposing um, I've heard an elder once talk about how when you, you tell people outside of your community about your community or when you're being researched and you're aware of being researched, it just kind of feels like you're opening up your body literally and you're exposing yourself and you're, it like makes you feel vulnerable because like, is somebody going to take something from me? Like if I have to close back up or anything, like what am I going to walk away missing? And definitely with something like Kennewick Man, um, or the ancient one. Um, that's what it feels like, you know, when it has this all. And this is the ex uh, exact exploitation that we were scared of or that we feel is like, okay, we're going to take the skull and we're going to sell it. We're going to make money off of it. And it's just kind of, I mean, in the deepest response I have, it's just really disgusting to me. So, um, but 
I suppose that's all I have on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of a lot, right? I mean, I think a lot of us, um, this collective response and, you know, different things are being brought up. Lucy? Well, I'm also thinking about the use of DNA now and the importance of it, you know, so going back to Patsy's, um, Patsy sharing that she had provided DNA for her sister to, to see if it would help and then there's no, um, there is no response or confirmation about that. And so I think it's really interesting that people are really excited to pay to have their DNA processed for um, ancestry, you know, but then there's some reluctance, like if it's related to a crime or, um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I have a lot of different thoughts about it and, and the delay in the process as well. Um, you know, like who do we hold accountable for those things? Who is actually going to be responsible for getting back to us to let us know like, hey, this is actually something that's, um, you know, important. Like, you know, when I, again, when I think of, um, you know, Parker Doe in our last episode, um, how her family is still waiting and who knows if her family had given DNA or not, or if that was even a subject. But then I also think, you know, it's, it's a bigger issue at hand and it goes into like systems, right? Like does our systems and our regulators actually, can they afford to have this DNA sent off to get analyzed? Um, you know, is there a proper collection of it? Um, is it a possibility that it could be, um, you know, contaminated with other DNA? And so, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I just have a lot of questions in, in general or thoughts around DNA collection because, you know, in ways it, we're, it's a, a, a double-edged sword. I don't know any other way to put it. Like, it's a great thing because people are finding out about their families. But at the same time, I also feel like, you know, they're just using it to be able to show like, hey, you're not fully indigenous the way that, you know, um, we expect you to be under, according to blood quantum, you know, requirements. So I'm, I'm kind of just um, frustrated by that. And, and then switching back to going back to this, you know, school thing, I just think um, Robin had hit it, you know, like there was a time during the 80s in 90s where Ripley's Believe It or Not was really, you know, this one of the main shows on television showing all these oddities and, you know, and redefining and, and portraying indigenous cultures as something, our practices being odd, our practices being out of the norm. And so I just thought that was really, um, you know, interesting because uh, when we think about it, when I think about it, we've been conditioned to think that our indigenous culture is not the norm, period. You know, just throughout history, throughout, um, you know, these, these reinforcements of imagery that we see through the television and whatnot. So um, I don't know, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm in both places, but again, like just in DNA in general, um, I do have questions about it. I, I'm curious, like, how can we actually 
reinforce and ensure the safety of our people who want to give their DNA. But, you know, in case there was a crime or if they have a missing loved one, but how can we assure them that their DNA is not going to be used for any other ways? Um, and, and really, I feel like that's a systems, you know, an overall system thing in society where we need to be more mindful about how much we're going to give up. Um, because, you know, uh, the American Bar Association said just earlier this year or last year, you know, your DNA isn't fully anonymous when you submit it to a lot of these genealogy places, you know, so I'm just going to put that right there for now. <laughs> yeah, a clear process. Patsy? So I wanted to go back to um, accountability and responsibility. Today in the media, there's a lot of conversation going on about, um, you know, um, cemeteries or uh, remains or not remains, but also burial grounds where boarding school children uh, have been located uh, in Canada. But also there's been work going on here in the United States with uh, the Carlisle Indian School. And so there's discussion going on, of course, you know, various roles of who's responsible and who's accountable for these remains. And so I've been just following along with Carlisle Indian School where um, the army has taken the lead, you know, one federal agency and unlike the the NAGPRA, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, you know, you're dealing with various individuals and various interpretations by, by those that are responsible for working with either families or tribes. And so there's differing um, opinions, differing res responses as well. So Again, it just reminds me of the statement that someone made about us just having to respond constantly to various regulations, and there's no one set regulation to respond to, just like um, when you're dealing, like, for instance, with the, with the FBI on DNA, uh, they, if there isn't any follow-up, then as family members, you don't know who you're to be following up with, and so it becomes very confusing, conflicting, and, and just causes anxiety on, on part of the families or the tribes or communities. And so I think that's a major issue when it comes to delay in the response, because there's a delay in response. And like I said, there hasn't been um, a response all of these years. As a matter of fact, I've provided two samples of DNA. So my question is, where does this DNA go? I mean, I had to research where it goes myself to find out what happens, where, where I think it went. And so there isn't, uh, I think, um, a very a comprehensive or integrated approach that really um, communicates uh, with family members as well. And so just thinking about the boarding schools uh, with the army, the it's up to the individual families to make the request and then the individual families have to follow through. I think then that becomes an issue too because it should be again, a response that everyone is supporting the families. 
And so in this case, they're having to work with the Army. And anytime you work with a new institution, you know, such for me, which has been the FBI, but also um, you know, families having to work with the Army, you're just having to try to figure out how do you even work with the Army in the first place? and the kind of history that we've had with the army. And I'm just using that as an example, because with values that we bring up, because you're dealing with various entities, when it comes to missing, murdered indigenous people, you may be dealing with, um, uh, you know, the FBI, you may be dealing with uh, tribal tribal law enforcement or the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you have so many entities to deal with and they all have their various regulations. So who is ultimately responsible then? And in the case of scientists as well, so what's their interpretation and what is their responsibility to, to this as well? Is there a shared responsibility that they all have or as um, the researchers and scientists is this an individual responsibility because they're the researchers, they're deemed the researchers, so are they individually responsible for the, the ethics about all of this? And so I think there are more questions to ask, just like with missing and murdered indigenous people, we really have to you know, take that apart and examine all aspects of it. And I've done that with Jaysira's case, and I'm familiar with, um, you know, one of the family members that I've been, we've been working with, uh, with National Union Women's Resource Center, and the process that the family ha has been using is what we suggested, but it requires a lot of work on behalf of the family to do so, and, and if you're not getting support, you know, then that creates burden on families, and so this conversation just opens up, you know, even more issues as well. We're going into different professions. We're talking about archaeologists. We're talking about scientists, and we're talking about law enforcement, the army, the federal government. You know, it's um, so <sighs> makes me tired just to think about it because it does entail a lot of work. Just from my own personal experience, family experience, it there's a lot of work to be done. And so I, I think what we're attempting to do here with the podcast is at least communicate this issue out there to the broader audience, but also let's have conversations about this and ask, ask ourselves, how can we you know, work together in a way that we're communicating with one another, we're collaborating with one another instead of having to work with various silos in the various institutions. So that's where I'm at. Thank you. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that personal insight about DNA. I think that we have this idea about how process works and jurisdictions work based on how we see true crime on TV and fictional stories, sometimes mm -hmm. true stories. And, you know, sometimes they're condensing time periods. Um, again, I wanna thank any of our live audiences that is uh, coming in. Oh, I'm getting an echo. It's, uh, okay. 
And uh, just a reminder, we're talking about DNA and delay in process. We are talking about the ancient one, uh, which was found in the Kennewick area and tribes took years to even prove that that was a Native American male uh, through DNA evidence. And we've uh, recently found out that they're selling replica skulls of his for some years and profiting still off this Native individual. Uh, family members and relatives of that person that submitted their DNA uh, were unaware of this fact until uh, this morning. Um, there's numerous individuals that did submit uh, DNA, I believe uh, uh, 22, approximately 22 that had submitted their DNA. Um, and it does bring us to this collective response that you're seeing now. We also have... Um, you know, there was a stone projectile, like an arrowhead, some might say, found in this uh, Kennewick man, our ancient one's pelvis. So whether that resulted in death or not, or what, you know, there was definitely an act of violence that happened against this individual. And since we do talk about Northwest missing and murdered, it definitely seemed applicable for that inclusion. And it definitely does give this aspect of who has ownership over them. And once you've proven that this is your relative, do other people have the right to continue to sell replicas of their skulls? And, it, you know, it comes across as really creepy. And if I had the power, I would look at those records of sale. I want to know who's buying these skulls. What purposes are they using it for? Um, you know, I believe the family deserves answers to that. I believe that nobody should be profiting off of him, especially institutions that tried to prove for years that he was not a Native individual. Um, and the issues again that Patsy had brought up regarding uh, multi-jurisdictional issues, not and and our other co-hosts have brought up not you know having a clear process, and you know there's an aspect of this whole thing to say why are all these natives why is there an MMIW issue why is there such a crisis you have to prove the failure of institutions. And this is one of the failures of the institutions is not having that clear line of responsibility, not having that clear reporting abilities um, to the public so that we can hold accountable. You know, we don't have a chart that says, Patsy's process of DNA stopped at this section and this was in so-and-so's hands. We don't have that. We're out there blind, just trying to ask for justice, um, for answers. Uh, and I want to uh, I want to um, close with this uh, quote. But I, uh, I'm not going to close the entire podcast. I do want to turn to Lucy for one of her uh, favorite questions about self care. But um, you know, at an MMIW event on May 5th, 2019, I stood encircled by a crowd giving the keynote, and I said, "We have a problem with our safety of Native women for 164 years." The missing and murdered women crisis cannot be fixed in the system we have. There has to be a new system across the local, tribal, state, and federal level. Uh, that's from page seven of my case study at the Evergreen uh, State College called War Cry. And, um, oh, and we do have a comment from our audience. So I'll go ahead and turn it to Robin. Oh, no, sorry, that was, I just wanted to make one comment on my own. <laughs> oh, <laughs> audience Robin. <laughs> Myself watching this podcast, I had a question. 
No, uh, just about uh, maybe like a closing remark or something about the delay in process, which, um, as you said, is seems to be a collective. But as I was listening, I was thinking about in terms of what we're fighting is just the the idea of bureaucracy, um, which on the surface, you know, throughout institutions, they establish it in order to create equality for those who have inquiries or wanting something done. But it just seems to reinforce like the discrimination of those who don't have the access or don't know the, the access or that they have access. Um, so as I was listening, it seems like it just seems to reinforce the status quo of what's currently there. And it does very little on the behalf or in the benefit of Native people. And as we look further and like uh, Patsy talks about institutions, they were essentially established and funded for the detriment of Native peoples in the United States and in Canada. Uh, an example would be like listening to our, our guests that we'll have on later Connie Walker's podcast, um, uh, Finding Chloe um, or Cleo, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, they had to do cross-national uh, bureaucracy and jurisdictions, which just the only advantage that they had is that when they interacted with these people, uh, the person behind the phone or behind the de desk actually had a personal connection to the young girl in question. If that was not there, they would not have gone further at all. You know, it would have been stuck in the world of bureaucracy and paperwork and all these things. Uh, and then as you had mentioned before, uh, Emily, which you were right on the head, which is like, these institutions need pressure. And it's like not talking about the workers there or anything like that. It's talking about the institution. And I think the institutions can handle that pressure. You know, they need to be held accountable and have pressure put on them. And I think the question is, is like, how are we going to do that? Um, like, and which is, of course, this is definitely a step, like having the podcast, having discussions. Um, hopefully, you know, the, our communities will say, hey, you know, this is exactly what it is that needs to be done. Um, but yeah, so that's all I had to say was just, uh, like you said, the collective answer about jurisdictions, bureaucracy, and institutions. That's great. Um, there's a lot there to unpack. Again, we might have spoke fast about it because we're so worked up. Uh, <laughs> but again, you know, feel free to leave your comments or questions uh, for us in the uh, uh, on YouTube or on our uh, socials, and we'll make sure to respond to you. Um, I also want to turn it over to my co-host Lucy to ask one of her favorite uh, questions of the group. Thanks, Emily. Um, so I know this is something that we tried um, last season to really talk about, and I feel like I kind of just missed it as we were moving along because so many things were happening simultaneously. Um, but I want to put it out there to the group because we talk about such heavy subjects because this is our daily life. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's good to do a check-in and to see where everybody's at as far as like if you're doing something for self-care. Um, so anybody who would like to share first what, what you're doing right now for self-care and, and how that's helping, or even if you just wanted to say, this is, this is what I do, um, I would appreciate that. Cause I feel like it's important for our audience to also know that, um, you know, sometimes this isn't easy for us to talk about 
but um, but we're also trying to make active efforts to do something for ourselves in this process. So who would like to share first? I'll go ahead and share. Uh, I think what has been helpful for me was to be able to articulate some of these issues when I first started doing this. Um, and I call that just taking healthy risks uh, to be able to even articulate some of these issues that I've talked about over the, you know, last year and this year, um, because that was really challenging to be able to, to have this kind of discussion. And so it takes time and it's something that I also see with, you know, other individuals who are, you know, having to address you know, these kinds of issues, missing and really hard to do. And so just having this opportunity to be able to talk about it and articulate it has been helpful. So for me, that's self-care as well. I have three kids, 11 and under, and they are in online school this year again. And it's, there's a lot of questions and things that come up and you know, especially when there's things of MMIW nature or MMIP that's coming up or in case information or very sensitive things are being triggered or emotional. Um, I've tried to think of when the last time my feet touched the earth. And if it's been a while or if I uh, don't feel like I've had that connection, I really try to uh, go outside and just have that moment. Sometimes it's only one minute. Sometimes I have a book out there, the kids go and play. Um, and sometimes I, you know, when I stretch and do my stretching after workouts, I'll take my shoes off. So it's actually physically touching the earth um, because I believe that connects me to um, a lot of the things here on this land, including our, our teachings about um, the resources and our, uh, how we're intertwined. Uh, let's see, uh, lately I've been um, letting myself be a bit, have more fun in terms of like playing like with my daughter. So she's three and uh, it is hard. Um, I had her when I was in my thirties. So it's like, I hadn't been able to let myself be a child for a while. And so that was, that's been really fun and just learning how to put the phone away. And I, I've noticed I'm more tired. So I'm just like, okay, you have to put the phone down and actually just rest. And that's been really hard, but it's been really beneficial. Um, whereas like I suspiciously, suspiciously get a good amount of sleep. I'm like, oh, I just woke up on time. You know, like, this is really neat. <laughs> so it's just like, but um, so I think that's been the biggest self-care thing is uh, kind of going back to saying be present in the moment it's been hard because I, I uh, like Lucy at times I, I'm like have a million things going through my head and I always bounce them off with her and I'm just like oh, I need to stop like it's okay to concentrate on one thought at a time <laughs> it's hard but um, and a lot of it has to do with the phone I know the phone stimulates a lot of your your brain activity and so it's like I need to just like let myself um, be tired and that's hard to do definitely when you're working mom and you're going through different things. Yeah. It's hard just to say, it's okay. You're tired. Go to sleep. <laughs> Thank you guys for sharing that. I feel like, um, it's just critical for us to 
even just be mindful, you know, like Emily had said, even if it's just taking it one minute out of the day to be able to, to do that. Um, I know for myself lately, uh, what I found is that, you know, I've kind of had this normalization of being able to talk about this heavy trauma and, you know, like with my family members or with friends. And sometimes I forget that this isn't always a normal conversation that people have in, in everyday, um, just in everyday talks. So I, I tried to be more, I try to be more cognizant of, of where the other person is at um, before, you know, I, I, I start sharing information. And I feel like that's also um, something for self-care because I, I, you know, I want to be mindful of the other person and not, um, you know, dump on them per se, but also just in thinking of like, okay, do I, what, do, what am I wanting to share? What am I trying to get out of the sharing process as well? Um, my other thing that I've been doing a lot lately is sleeping. I know it sounds funny, but I have been sleeping quite a bit and I, I try very hard to because I'm an insomniac. And so I'll wake up, you know, at different hours of the day and night and stuff like that. But um, I feel like sleeping does really help me put things into a different perspective. Um, and sometimes I have that magical thinking, you know, like maybe I'll just wake up and something will be different, you know, like in Disney movies. But um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen. But I at least feel better about the approach that I have um, moving forward after I wake up from a good rest. So thank you all for sharing that. And if the audience wants to contribute, like some of the things that they do for self-care or, you know, what works for them, um, feel free to share that information. We'd love to hear you guys, you know, and, and what you do as well. Great. Um, yeah, the topic of self-care is one that can be sometimes taboo in Native communities. And I appreciate Lucy with all of her credentials and uh, leading us in that uh, share moment. Uh, I do want to give a war cry out to the ancient one, Tichamaninch Oikpamana Titite, as well as a war cry out to families that have submitted DNA of loved ones to get answers, and especially giving extra care and, uh, you know, social distance hugs to those families that are still waiting and unsure of where they're at in the process, including our co-host, uh, Patsy. Uh, again, we our War Cry podcast this is season two. We thank you for joining us. We are an indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I'm Emily Washings. Thank you to the co-hosts, Robin, Lucy, and Patsy. We are streaming from the Yakima Reservation located in the Northwest. For our credits, we have support from Native Women in Action. We are edited and produced by Robin Pewishi. Logos and shirts by John Only Schellenberger at Native Anthro. And music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa. Thank you.